Good afternoon and welcome back to the show. I am your host, Todd Schnick. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. It's not often that I get to hang with a Pulitzer Prize winner, but I'm really looking forward to this one. Say hello to today's guest. He's a best-selling author. He is the winner of the Pulitzer Prize and former Washington Post film critic. Welcome to the show, Stephen Hunter. Thank you, Todd. It's great to be with you. Well, the pleasure is mine, Stephen. I appreciate you making time to join us. So, Stephen, I'm I'm probably pretty certain that the audience is somewhat familiar with you and your work, but just uh, take a second and share with the audience a bit of the story of Stephen Hunter. Oh, gosh, I wish it were inspirational and fabulously colorful and full of romance and adventure and and sex and alcohol and all those good stuff. But it's just a grim life, the grunge who sat in the chair and did the work. I uh, came up through journalism. I was the book review critic, then the uh, film critic of the Baltimore Sun, was at that paper for 26 years, moved to the Washington Post and was there for 11 years as their film critic, during which uh, they, uh, I did, in fact, win the Pulitzer Prize, which I'm uh, very proud, as you might imagine. They also have a small flair for narrative. I like to read thrillers. I like to write thrillers. And I've now published 18 featuring a figure named, uh, most of them featuring a Bob Lee Swagger, a former Marine sniper who has a kind of an autistic ability to understand the dynamics of shooting episodes in the way that other people uh, can't or won't or don't. And he finally turns his attention to the most famous shooting episode in American history, uh, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, November 22nd, 1963, Dallas, Texas. He looks at it. I contrive a thrilleristic way to get him interested in it, though he's initially reluctant. And he sees hints, shadows, possibilities that some other people haven't seen. And he uncovers a conspiracy, you know, which you can't, can't believe. It's up to you. But I think you'll believe in the book as a story, as a riveting, dramatic story that goes from start to finish super fast and has some... Uh, has some pretty exciting sequences in it. Well, there's uh, there's some sex appeal to that story in our history, and and I, I find uh, any writing that touches on that subject is always quite intriguing, just because there, there's such a, a draw to it for for its historical significance. You know, on that subject, I mean, what's it like? To write about a historical event, I mean, does that make the process easier? Does that make it harder? I mean, what are the challenges with writing about something that really happened in history? Well, it actually helps me a great deal. Uh, I have discovered through trial and error and failure and success that I am seem to be at my best when I'm looking to pre-establish outline. When I sort of, it's like I'm doing the coloring, but the lines are already there. Uh, and that is helpful to me. The one place I fear and never want to end up is 4 a.m. and not knowing what happens. It helps me to know, to have signposts, to have personalities, to have goals, and to keep the plot and, the, and my own momentum progressing steadily, you know, within the framework of something that's already there. You know, I could never write one of these uh, huge, gigantic science fiction fantasy novels where there basically are no rules. I 
I need the rules. I live by the rules. I'm, I'm a rule guy, I suppose you could say. And all my books, regardless of whether they've drawn from or been connected to, you know, directly or indirectly, have sort of been constructed on a historical frame in a real time, in a real place, with a real culture and with a background of real events. And that, as I say, that's my talent is most expressive under those circumstances. Well, you know, is that your advice to a... I mean, there's all different kinds of writers out there, and not many have published 18 best-selling books, but, I mean, if they're struggling, is that the, is that a framework you suggest that they try? Or, I mean, I always, I always say there's so much fascinating stories in history that you don't have to invent anything new. Yeah, I would... You know, it's hard to tell a young... I think the most important thing for young writers do is understand the nature of their talent. I, when I was starting out, this is way back in the 70s in the newspaper business, and everyone wanted to write a novel. And they all thought they were going to write great novels, and they just thought that the world would welcome their genius. Well, I didn't want to write great novels. I wanted to write very market-specific thrillers uh, with a certain, uh, with about four or five distinctive attributes. And the tightness of my focus was a great advantage to me over the sloppiness of their focus and their expectations of greatness. You know, I, I make a joke that in those days in the sun, five people went off to write great novels. And within the next ten, five years, five novels were published by people who were writing writers on the sun. Well, the joke was it was none of those five people who'd gone to Dublin, who'd gone to London, who'd gone to New York or the Outer Banks or whatever exotic place they'd gone to write. <laughs> All those novels were published by me, and where I went was the spare bedroom. So I'm what's called the spare bedroom theory of writing. You've got to do the work. And what these people were doing was painting themselves into a corner and making a sort of a public spectacle of themselves and their ambition because they feared that they had intestinal fortitude to do it on themselves, do it on their own. And they needed a structure, they needed a structure of expectation to force them to work. And they all failed. And I succeeded because I had very small, specific objectives. I had very mild ambitions. I just wanted to publish a series of books that express certain ideas and use certain things uh, in a way that they hadn't been used before. And that was all that was before any bestseller stuff happened, before a movie was made. It was, uh, you know, I mean, I, my, my ambitions were, were realistic and professional as opposed to grandiose and delusional. So here's the lesson to young writers. I'm not saying do it my way. My way is the only way to do it. But figure out what your talent is and what it is best at and where you are most comfortable. And that's where you should concentrate. Do not try and be something you aren't. If you try and be literary and you're not particularly literary, or you try and be commercial and you're not particularly commercial, you're going to fail. You've got to understand who and what you are and where your skills, your gift, uh, where that lay, where that is located, and, and work off that 
cases. Stephen, there's not a lot of Hollywood movies about writers where they go upstairs in the spare bedroom and write. I mean, I, I think that's part of the problem is that Hollywood and the media portrays the, as you, you listed some exotic locales, I mean, that talk a little bit more about your process. Are you one of those guys that gets up at 4 a.m. and writes for two hours and nonstop, and then you take the rest of the day off? Or do you write it all at one time? There's a growing fascination with the process of successful writers. What is yours? Uh, my process is very casual. I trust that I will finish. Uh, I am, I, I've always said that on the day that I begin a book, 2,000 other people begin their books, and they're much smarter, much better looking, far more talented. They're wittier. I probably have better teeth and better hair and much better taste and clothes. But two years later, I'm the one giving the interviews because they never finished their books. <laughs> and I know that good, bad, or indifferent, I, I've just cultivated the ability to manage the big project. Here's another little um, trope of mine. I always tell people it's baseball. It's not football. That is, it's a long season. You're going to have terrible games. You're going to be ground way down. You're going to lose hope, but you just have to keep plunging ahead. It's not epic battles every Sunday. It's small firefights every single day of the week. If I can, I'm hopelessly scrambling metaphors here, but the point <laughs> I'm trying to make for writers who are listening is that you've got to sort of you've got to sort of master the mi the micro aspects of the craft before you can even begin to consider the macro aspects. You know, you've got to think practically, you've got to think realistically. You ask my process, it's pretty sloppy. I usually work a couple of hours a day. Uh, usually in the afternoon. In the old days, when I was a film critic and was writing books on the side, I always, I always wrote at night. Now uh, I don't go to a day job, so I sleep late. I cruise the internet. Uh, I'll either write before I go shooting or after I go shooting. Uh, I may go back at night and rework something, but I try and keep it sort of relaxed and methodically forward moving as opposed to waiting for blasts of inspiration or anguish that propel me the keyboard. You've got to think of writing like as, as, as if it's brushing your teeth. It's a habit. It doesn't take will. It's not something you think about. You just do it because it's woven into the fabric of your life. You've had some of your works turned into films. And I was just curious, uh, as as your career progresses and you're and you're adding up the the number of completed novels, do you are you starting? Is that is the the prospect of having a, a book turned into a film? Does that change your your goals and your writing style? I mean, are you now envisioning actors when you when you develop characters? I hope not. Um, <laughs> I, people, I, I read occasionally in reviews that I learn storytelling from all the movies I've. Scene and that that conveniently ignores the fact I had in fact written four and published two novels before I became a film critic. So evidently I knew a little bit about storytelling before I became a film critic. You can't help influenced by movies. I mean that that there is no doubt that the editing techniques, that the the the, the visions, that the, some of the. Uh, Oh, there's almost not a word for it, but there's certain feelings in movies that 
uh, you, I've tried explicitly to get into books and thought very hard, certain colors, certain rhythms, certain, certain senses of, I don't know, bits of business. Uh, sometimes I do it quite nakedly. Other times I realize much later that I was aping a movie. And, and what I'm saying is that as both a movie person and a prose person, there does seem to be quite a lot of interaction between the two of them to the point where I can no longer make those distinctions. But I hope I have never written a book along, I've never gone direction A because I thought it would be better for the movie as opposed to direction B, which I thought would be better for a book. I've always gone direction B uh, for better or for worse. Well, because I, you know, I'm working on a book, and I'll be perfectly frank. I can't help but think about how it would present on film, and I, and I've always thought that that was a the wrong way to do it. So I'm, I'm trying to seek some free consulting here on that. So I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, I read somewhere, Stephen, that you were a master at tapping into our deep collective fear. Tell me more about that. Uh, well, it's certainly not something I do consciously. I can only uh, assume that if it's true, it's because I feel those deep collective fears very passionately myself. Uh, I may be... I may be expressing the zeitgeist of my generation, but I never set out to do that. I just understood that every novel, no matter how fanciful and removed from my own reality, was nevertheless an expression of myself, of my subconscious, and that my own issues would creep into it, regardless of how hard I tried to keep them out. And I didn't really try that hard. I didn't even really think about it. Just wrote the stories in ways that I thought were interesting, and I told them, I organized them and, and, and told them in what I thought were the best ways, and I let the psychology fall where it may. But yeah, I mean, I am concerned about terrorism, I'm concerned about political oppression, I'm concerned about, I'm concerned about the effect of charisma on uh, human behavior and in, in convincing people to do things that are against their best interests. I'm appalled at policy parades being created like marches in a certain direction where media and government beat the drums together and and entertainment media is factored in. I, I find all that, you know, I mean, I'm fundamentally a very basic 50s kind of, of guy, and I don't like being massaged, nudged, and cajoled by media, even though I was part of media. I just, uh, you know, I've seen it from the inside, and I've seen the formation of the narrative, you know, sort of a, an alternative truth that everyone knows is wrong, but just expresses everybody's, you know, politics and preferences and case preferences so passionately they can't get away from it. Uh, so I think in that sense, just simply as a citizen in our times, uh, and perhaps too sensitive for my own damn good, I am aware of and I express the anxieties that I feel, which it turns out many other people feel as well. Stephen, you were a film critic and a, and a successful one, obviously. Uh, today, when you publish a book, do you 
Do you pay attention? Do you really worry about? Do you, let me ask this frankly, do you care what critics say about your work? It's a, such a good question. And what you're going to get from me is a long groan of ambivalence and <laughs> anguish. <laughs> you know, a lot of criticism is it's I, I read things about my own work that was so stupid uh, that I cringed and think I was once part of an industry that sold stupidity uh, as as a stock trade. And I wonder if I wrote about the movies, and I can remember a few times when I probably did, which I said things that were so utterly stupid that uh, I should have been <laughs> taken out beaten and dumped in the dumpster <laughs> behind the building. I mean, there's no real answer to that. I, I Occasionally a critic will say something very perceptive and it'll impress me. Book criticism in this country has, like all forms of criticism and too many forms of prose, is pretty much just diminished now because of the attention deficit disorder of is sort of inculcated by the internet. You know, the the sort of the short snarky bit is 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 sort of in fashion as opposed to the more reflective, more ironic, more beautifully written and argued essay. And that thing, that last thing was what I hope to do. And I understand that as though I may read it immensely it's time has passed. I mean, there's just no room. No one has the time for throat-clearing and ironic asides and the finely tuned praise. People want info now, fast, fast, now. Gimme, gimme, gimme. And if you if they don't get it, they hit, they they pop and they move on to something else. And that's the new rhythm of the media. I, it's it's like I feel about the post. The party's over, but there's no point in missing it because it's not like when I left the newspaper business, the newspaper business went on, and there are still people enjoying the great pleasures I enjoy. That party is over. That newsroom is dead. It doesn't exist anymore. There's no more long takes. There's no more sustaining a reporter for four months while he does a deep investigation or a feature writer who tries to craft something exquisite in the language over that's gone. And there's just, you just have to get over it's being gone and adapt or sink into alcohol bitterness. And mm-hmm. I've determined that I will not be alcoholically bitter for at least another three years, you know, <laughs> 19, 20, 2015, Alcoholic bitterness, that's my destination. But not until then am I going to give in to it. Yeah, maybe at the 20th book. I got you. Okay, hey, one last question. You just mentioned new media and the impact yeah. that the Internet <laughs> is having on the world. You're obviously coming up through the book publishing in the more traditional ranks with a very reputable house, putting out the works and all that. What do you? What is your take on the the ease with which people can now self-publish works and, and promote them on on things like Amazon is is that a good thing? Is that exposing more good writers to the world? What's your what's your take on all that? Again, it'll be a long cry of anguish and ambiguity. Um, you know, I profited from a snarky exclusive system that only let certain people of certain pedigree, and I don't deny that. I was 
privately educated in refined culture, got into media and from media got into publishing. I knew the language. I had friends who helped me or tried to help me. I understood that 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 the whole system was, was set up to let me in and keep others out. And I made money and a small degree of, of fame and fortune from that. Uh, and, and I didn't mind that. You know, I'm not going to give that money back and I'm not going <laughs> to regret my life as a as an egotistical elitist in a tiny little world of professional writing all based out of New York. On the other hand, the truth is that the the means of expression have long needed to and are now democratized. And when you democratize something, you have chaos, you have carnage, but you have much fresher and more aggressive expression. And that's generally good. There are always, you know, moments where it's bad, but but generally that is progress, I think. And you know, I, I maybe only because I've got mine, I can say, "Go ahead, tear the system down. I don't care." You know, if 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 I hadn't gotten mine yet, and the death of the system would mean the death of my aspirations, I might have a different perspective on it. But I feel that anyone, you know, like the same thing is true as film criticism. Anyone can be a film critic now. It's so hard to get those jobs. It was so hard to keep those jobs. And the more elite the media that you joined, the harder and harder and harder it got to get those jobs until when you stood at the pinnacle of your profession, you had survived. You were the last survivor of the of the first day of the sum. You know, everybody was dead, but you were still alive. Well, that's all gone. Now anybody can be a film critic. A guy from Oshkosh is just as much, if his work is vivid and and uh, perceptive, he has just as much uh, influence as the guy who is doing it for the New York Times. And I have to believe, even though it steps on my toes, that it's basically a good thing. And, it, and what we're doing is we're sort of freeing communication to the forces of the market. And the market will determine whether they're going to read the guy in the Times or the guy in Oshkosh, or they're going to read Steve Hunter, publisher, published by Snooty, Simon & Schuster, or Bob Hunter, published by BobHunter.com in the next garage over from the film critic in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And why not? You know, you know, why not? Let the more people who come to the party, I think the better off will be. Stephen, we're out of time. It has been an absolute pleasure to spend some time with you. I appreciate you sharing some of your thoughts on writing and grateful to your time. Before I let you go, how can people get in touch with you? Where can they learn more about your work? And most importantly, where can they get their hands on your latest thriller, The Third Bullet? Uh, they can't get in touch with me. <laughs> it's, not, it's not possible. <laughs> uh, however, there seems to be a Facebook page with which I am marginally acquainted. I can't say I'm deeply involved in it, but it's pretty good. Uh, I don't really have... Uh, there's a couple of amateur websites which I'm very hard... One of these days, I'm going to do a website kind of thing. Uh, the best place is to go to Amazon or to Google me. And you know, as well as I do, in 30 seconds, you're going to be sick to death for me because there's just so much 
stuff out there that will come pouring into your living room. And uh, the book, The Third Bullet, which I must say is number five in the New York Times bestseller list this week, seems to be attracting a lot of attention. Go to your local bookstore or go to Amazon or Barnes & Nobles. It's very easy to get it in your little hands very quickly. That's one of the greatnesses of our technological age. Stephen Hunter, best-selling author of 18 books, including your latest, The Third Bullet. Again, it was a pleasure having you. Thanks for making time. Thank you, Todd. Bye-bye now. All right. Well, that wraps this segment. On behalf of my guest, Stephen Hunter, I'm Todd Schnick. We'll see you next time.